This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Saturday, July 1st, 2017. I'm Caleb Brown. The Supreme Court recently handed down the property rights case of Murphy, Wisconsin. In a word, it's disappointing. That according to Roger Pallon, Vice President for Legal Affairs at the Cato Institute. The decision combines dubious rulings of the past to create a less stable environment for property owners going forward. We spoke this week. Property rights are not well protected by the Supreme Court. Um, They are at least not consistently protected, as we would hope, based upon a uh, standard issue reading of the Constitution. And in this case of Murr, we have uh, yet another case, in this case, a fairly disappointing uh, outcome. Absolutely. Uh, The Decision that came down last week in Murphy, Wisconsin, shows once again how it is that the Supreme Court has given us a very erratic reading of our property rights, and uh, it doesn't look to improve until they get clear about the theory of the matter, and that's the nub of it. Um, Let's start with the takings clause itself of the Fifth Amendment, which says, nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation. And so that implicitly authorizes the power of eminent domain, but it should be used sparingly because it is a forced association. And secondly, when it is used, it must be done for a public uh, uh, use and just compensation must be paid. So what we have to do is define property, which was the issue here, and then uh, determine uh, whether there is indeed a public use, which was the issue in the Kelo case, the infamous Kelo case, and then determine what just compensation is. And rarely, if ever, does an owner get just compensation when his property is taken because what he gets is market value. And the very fact that market value is not just is indicated by the fact that he doesn't have his property on the market. Uh, That tells you that it's worth more to him than it would fetch in the market. But that's the state of our law today. But this case uh, concerned regulatory takings. And here, let me just say a little bit uh, about that, Caleb. uh, Normally, we think of... um, the takings clause is applying when the uh, government condemns property and takes title to it in order to build a school or a road or a, a military installation, what have you. Regulatory takings occur and they have incurred, uh, occurred ever so much more uh, since the turn of the 19th into the 20th century with the rise of the modern regulatory state. They occur when the government Uh, issues regulations that take uses that go with the property uh, and do so in order to provide the public with uh, some good, a lovely view, wildlife habitat, and so forth, uh, but leaves the title with the owner. And so the question arises, has the government actually committed a taking under the takings clause? Well, The court addressed this uh, early in the 20th century in a pair of rent control cases out of New York and Washington, D.C., in which it held that uh, there were exigent circumstances. These uh, rent controls were imposed temporarily uh, during World War I. Well, we know how that worked out. Uh, Due to exigent circumstances, uh, no um, taking occurred. 
Then a year later in 1922, uh, in uh, a case involving a coal company, uh, the court said that if a regulation goes, quote, too far, it constitutes a taking and the owner is entitled to compensation. Well, with that bright line, too far, we've had what Justice Scalia in 1992 said were 70 odd years of ad hoc regulatory taking his jurisprudence. And he was absolutely right, even as he, in that case, was adding another year to the string. So uh, taking a when a regulation goes too far, then a taking has occurred. This seems to be the same kind of logic applied to, say, a reasonable expectation of privacy, <laughs> which is just the idea that, well, it, it's a thing, it exists, it probably doesn't apply in this one case, so we're going to extend the thinking that we haven't gone too far yet. Right. And in fact, we can see this in this case that came down last week, Murphy, Wisconsin. It's a case that's complex both on its facts and its law. Let me start working my way through it, Caleb, because it's going to take a few minutes for me to do so. Um, the the Murrs uh, uh, were a, uh, four siblings who had inherited two parcels from their parents uh, along the uh, St. Croix River in uh, Wisconsin. And uh, the parents had originally purchased the lots in 1960 and 1963, respectively. Uh, on the first, they built uh, an ancestral home. And on the second, um, th they did nothing. They bought it for investment purposes. The problem arose for the Murrs, the siblings, in 2004 when they went to sell that second lot, the uh, investment lot, and they found that an ordinance that had been passed blocked them from doing so. Either they um, could, they had to sell the two parcels together, including the home, or not sell at all. Uh, and they wanted to sell the uh, investment a lot uh, in order to use the proceeds uh, to, Im to update the home. The lot was valued at $410,000. But since this local zoning ordinance prohibited them from doing that, they were out literally $410,000. So they did what every red-blooded American would do. They sued. And they lost uh, at the lower level, and so they eventually went to the Supreme Court. Now, when the Supreme Court uh, went to uh, uh, decide this case, it uh, did so primarily on a case called um, Penn Central v. New York, a 1978 case, which uh, instituted a three-part balancing test to determine when a regulatory taking occurs and compensation is due. Now, this test requires the court to weigh the regulation's economic impact on the property, its interference with investment-backed expectations, and the character of the government action. And moreover, there is a fourth uh, requirement, and that is that the, uh, the analysis uh, be done on, quote, the parcel as a whole. So you can see the problem already because the question becomes, 
Uh, is the parcel as a whole that second lot that was bought in 1963? Or is it the combined lots that, as a, that resulted from the local zoning ordinance? And the reason f that that's important is this. We have to bring in a second case, namely Lucas v. South Carolina Coastal Council that was handed down in 1972. Let me take a moment to give you the facts on that one. And because there, too, we've got problems. David Lucas bought two parcels on the Outer Banks of South Carolina in 1986 with the idea of building a home on one and a home to sell on the other, a home for himself on one and to sell on the other. He paid nearly a million dollars for the two lots. But a year later in 1987, the South Carolina legislature passed a Beachfront Management Act in order to promote tourism and to preserve certain flora and fauna, the effect of that uh, statute was to render Lucas's lots all but uh, valueless. He could pitch a tent on them. He could um, uh, have a picnic on them. But it was a pretty expensive picnicking property for nearly a million dollars. So he sued. And in, where he lost uh, at the trial level and uh, – excuse me, he won at the trial level but then lost in the South Carolina Supreme Court. And eventually it got to the Supreme Court and by five to four, the court found for him. But the ruling, which uh, Justice Scalia uh, wrote the opinion, held that he was entitled to compensation because the regulation took virtually all value in his property. In other words, uh, there was a wipeout rule that the court uh, repaired to. The problem with that wipeout rule, of course, is this. Rarely does a regulation reduce all of the value in a property. In fact, in his dissent, Justice Ske uh, Stevens put that to, to Scalia and Scalia uh, dismissed it to, out of hand by saying tersely, Taking's law is full of these all-or-nothing situations. So you see, now we go back to the Murr case and we've got the, um, the uh, uh, Penn Central criteria and we've got this uh, including the, uh, the requirement that they applied to the, quote, parcel as a whole and we've got the wipeout rule from Lucas and you put them together and here's how it comes out. If the court treats the two lots separately as they were deeded and as they have been taxed and deeded ever since, then the, uh, the MERS are entitled to compensation because that second lot had its value completely wiped out under Lucas. However, if the court takes that 1974 ordinance, which combined the two lots, then, of course, the wipeout rule does not apply because there is value left in the combined lots. And so that was the issue that was before the court. And what the court did, this is um, Justice uh, Kennedy writing for the four liberals, uh, was to take the uh, combined lot uh, approach. Therefore, under Lucas, they were not entitled. They might have been titled under Penn Central. But of course, these three criteria that I mentioned earlier, economic impact on the property, interference with investment-backed expectations, and character of the government action are 
criteria that nobody knows the meaning of. And in fact, what Kennedy did was go through them and muddy the waters even further. And that's um, exactly uh, why it was that uh, Just Chief Justice uh, Roberts, uh, writing for himself and Justices uh, Alito and Thomas, uh, Justice Gorsuch took no part in the opinion, uh, uh, wrote a dissent. Uh, but the problem was his dissent was that he said that the uh, court's holding does not trouble him. What he would do is send the case back to see to ask the court below to identify, quote, the relevant property according to state law standards. Well, there precisely is the problem. The property has been determined by state law standards, namely that 1974 ordinance. And the effect of that ordinance is to combine the two properties. So what we're left with as a result of both the majority opinion by Justice Kennedy and the dissent by Chief Justice Roberts, we're left with a situation whereby the government, in this case the state of Wisconsin, can change the rules after the game has started with, for example, this 1974 zoning ordinance, which redefines the property and by doing so, get out from under the requirements of the takings clause. So it seems to be uh, if I'm a local government or a state government and I'm examining this opinion, this would seem to uh, open up my opportunities to engage in takings if I'm cle clever enough with writing statutes and regulations. Absolutely. And it's only Clarence Thomas who saw this. In his concurrence, he said that the he did concur with, um, uh, with the uh, Roberts' opinion because, uh, and I quote, it correctly applies this court's regulatory takings uh, precedents. But of course, there precisely is the problem. So Thomas joined the Roberts dissent? Thomas wrote a separate opinion concurring with the Roberts dissent. And the reason he did concur, as he wrote, is that it correctly applies this court's regulatory takings precedents. But there, of course, is the problem. And he made it clear because he went on to say that the court, quote, has never purported to ground its precedence in the Constitution as it was originally understood. And Thomas was absolutely right with that. We come back to where we started. We have a regulatory takings jurisprudence that is absolutely ad hoc and a series of opinions relating to property rights more broadly that can be described as nothing but erratic that leave property owners in the lurch as to whether the uh, government has or has not conformed to the Constitution in its actions. So there are several problems here that ought to be dealt with and let's, let's just take them in turn. What is wrong with balancing tests? The, the balancing test that has come out of Penn Central, what's wrong with that is that nobody knows what it means. I mean, what about investment-backed expectations? What, what are the, the, this is a subjective criterion if ever there 
were one, the character of the government action. I mean, what does that stand for? Um, This has been applied – well, as one scholar said, the only thing you need to know when you're up against uh, the Penn Central balancing test as a property owner is that you will lose. This is uh, the state of things today. Now, it turns out that there have been a couple of cases in which the owners have won under Penn Central. But those are anomalies uh, in the extreme. Um, there's another issue here that comes out of the um, the Lucas case, and it's the bundle of sticks issue. And I can take a moment to go through that to show you why it is that Scalia's wipeout rule is wrong. Often, when we talk of property rights, we liken the rights to a bundle of sticks each stick standing for the many uses that you can make of property. You can uh, devise your property in different ways. You can uh, rent it um, for a period. You can do all manner of things legally with your property. And in every other area of property law, we understand this and apply this uh, bundle of sticks metaphor perfectly acceptably, except in regulatory takings area. Here, it turns out under this wipeout rule that you're entitled to compensation only after the last stick has been taken. Now think about that for a moment. If a mugger were to come up to you and say your money or your life and you were to bargain him down to half the money in your pocket because you needed bus fare to get home, we would certainly be able to say that the mugger had taken your property, even if he didn't take all of your property. And yet, if that mugger has a badge that says U.S. government or state of Wisconsin, only after they take all the uses are you entitled under the Lucas rule to compensation. There's something very wrong there. The taking should occur from the time the first stick is taken, not only after the last stick is taken. Roger Pallon is Vice President for Legal Affairs at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play. And follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.